Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Our guest on this episode, Luke Turner, is a writer and editor whose first book, Out of the Woods, was wildly lauded as both one of the best LGBT and best nature books of recent years. His new book, Men at War, comes out at the end of April. It's a new history of World War II that gets to grips with the complex identities of the men who fought and recognises them as creatures of lust, desire, hope and fear. He told Luke Naylor Perrett all about it. So, first question. This book sort of stands against a number of traditional archetypes and paradigms of wartime masculinity. What kind of guys do we imagine in the popular imaginary regarding World War II? Who, who are you potentially challenging? What are the archetypes there? My feeling is this, there's, there's two or three. And one is this sort of mass view of, of these ordinary men who quietly went off to do their bit and served in whatever way they did and came back home and didn't want to talk about it and got on with life and begat the baby boomers and were kind of old people in the 70s and, you know, shuffling around with ties on, you know, around the supermarket, which I think is a very simplistic view, but I do feel it's one that you kind of maybe is an assumption in culture. And then I suppose we have the sort of archetypes of war films, old school war films, and actually some of the more recent ones, some of the sort of ones that, like Dunkirk, of of kind of fresh-faced young men, quite handsome, posh officers, people in their unit who might be like a Cockney or a Scouser or a Scotsman, somebody who's a bit weedy, you know, that sort of thing. And then perhaps we have a bit of an idea, and I think this is maybe less so in Britain than maybe America, of sort of but slightly more macho characters. I thought the essay, new recent SAS Rogue Hero series was interesting because although they're very tough people, as they were in real life, as they're depicted as tough people, they, they actually had some nuance in it, which I thought was really interesting. They weren't simple kind of like gun-toting, hectic men. But I, I just felt there was sort of, you know, they, these what, what I realised was sort of lacking among all of these depictions was really a sort of sense of desire as a, thorny and complicated and knotty thing obviously all the war films have romance in because how else better how better a way is there to tell you about the tragedy of war than to have uh, some poor waff or wren at home weeping as uh, you know she gets the news that her partner has died and farewells at railway stations and everything but I just thought that, that the desire part of masculinity that is just so fundamental to who who we are was somewhat absent and that did go for heterosexual desire as much as it did homosexual desire. And the thing that I was kind of most interested in, the sort of fluidity of desire between the two and the men who identified as heterosexual, but sort of didn't stick to that, shall we say, during the war years. It's, uh, it's such a trope when the side character gets out the photo of his lover and then you're like, hey, he's going to die. He's Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. They're always doomed. They're always doomed. Yeah, or yeah, when yeah. There's, they, they find the body of a dead German or Japanese person and they're looking through and then they've got a picture of their family back home and they think, oh, war, isn't it terrible? We're all the same, really. You know, it, it is... I mean, you can see... I, I, I almost like I'm not trying to... To totally critique that because it's it's to- it's valid. It just doesn't tell the whole story. That's my problem with it. 
Absolutely. Well, actually, so so speaking of um, your personal interests and and your personal journey here, I think that's something that I've found really compelling is you don't try and hide behind other people's stories necessarily or facts. You you weave in your own story kind of beautifully, and and whether that's you you know fixing up model planes to your ceiling or or trips to tank festivals, which we will get into, um, <laughs> but also your your your, um, your personal journey with your sexuality and with coming to terms with that in a world that maybe isn't the most you know, comfortable. How could you just just sort of lay the landscape for how World War Two features in your life and and why your narrative and these narratives are so interestingly intertwined? Yeah, it it, it is odd because I don't you know as I write in the book, my parents are not war warry people. My dad was a Methodist minister. Uh, my mum's daughter of a conscientious objector. They're very Christian, pacifist. I mean, not not sort of pacifist to saying that all war is always wrong. I wouldn't say that, but war was definitely not something that was kind of they they weren't into it, as it were. And 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 you know, I wasn't allowed guns, wasn't allowed military toys, but from a very young age, I was obsessed with them, Pick, making sticks into pistols, turning Lego into war things. And I think eventually they just sort of cracked and gave me. I got a model kit. Uh, I, technically, was from my conscientious objector granddad. It was a, <laughs> a, a Curtis Warhawk. Uh, it was my first kit. And I I still... It's kind of why I write about machines a lot in the book because I think a lot of it was to do with... I have I was always into machines, steam trains when I was little, still into steam trains, to be honest. Um, and I think war machines, just the aesthetics of them, I just thought were... I thought they were very beautiful. Um, Aeroplanes were exciting. Uh, we didn't see many when I was a kid because we didn't live any near any airports or anything. It's kind of weird that when you live... Now in London, I see aeroplanes all the time. When I was a kid, they were really exciting. You didn't see them very often. And so it just went from from there, really. And I, I, the books were always great. Um, I wasn't that into football or pl- playing football like other kids were. I, we weren't allowed to watch films, so I didn't have that kind of cartoons, comics, Hollywood thing that some of my friends had. So I guess it was a sort of slightly lonely interest for most of my life so it is and I wanted to start interrogating that because what I realized that though it's, it's it's sort of maybe faded as I got into music and messing around and being naughty and all this sort of stuff the war interest it, in the past decade it picked up again and then having a kid I was sort of you know I'm having a little boy I was sort of, I want to interrogate this where did this come from and how do I feel about it now do I am I am I going to reject it that was the sort of the the question I was asking as, as I wrote the book. So speaking of people who, who definitely don't reject it, I promise they'd come back to Tank Fest. Um, yeah. There's that uh, moment in the Peep Show, I don't know if you've seen Michelin Webb's Peep Show, where um, uh, one of the characters makes a friend who goes to the to the reenactment and, and you suddenly realise that we're not in character anymore and that, and that Daryl's not supposed to say that. And, you know, <laughs> basically... Just dig into what it's like to go to Tank Fest. What type of guys are at Tank Fest? You know, and and especially the moment that you pick up a soft toy anti-tank gun, I found particularly funny. You know, why would someone go to Tank Fest, and what's it like there? Paint a picture for our listeners. Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to go to a, a a war festival that had an element of reenactment and had machines there just to sort of sound it out. And I thought I could go to an air show, but aeroplanes are really beautiful, and I think they pick up a sort of casual 
uh, interest. We haven't got any of the ships really anymore, and the Royal Navy's shrunk somewhat and is all over the world. So there's not really a naval one. So I thought I'll go to Tank Fest. And, and as I write the book, you know, I wasn't really into tanks uh, so quite so much. Um, they just seemed quite, quite sort of ground war violent to me. So I was, I was slightly less into them. I had a, I had a couple, but not, not so many. So I went to Tank Fest, and it was, it was, a, it was a really odd day because. I really loved it in some ways. It was exciting, like the, seeing these things go around. But they also still felt very sinister to me. Cause, and the noise they make is just really creepy. And you, you do start imagining, because, you know, that's one of the things war films do, I think, quite well, is that sort of like squeaking tank tracks in the distance uh, coming towards a village, whatever, or towards some soldiers. So, so they're, they're, they still they have such an amazing, like, twisted presence while still looking very cool. And you could sort of see that's, you know, the, the, the crowd seemed, some people seemed to get that, and I think quite find that interesting. But it was, a lot of it, I reckon, was this sort of Venn diagram of people who you might go see go to stock car racing and heavy metal fans. And people, again, people who are into machines in a kind of more technical way, I think. There was a lot of people looking at, en- looking at the engines and kind of really interested in the tracks and everything. So I think I think that was the sort of the crowd. I mean, it was it was a bit like a, a metal festival crowd in some ways. I mean, and it was very there were women there, but it was majoritively men, but vast majority. Um, and so you got you got the tanks going around and around and doing these fake battles, but then you do have the the groups who dress up as soldiers, and it was very interesting that they sort of perform masculine archetypes. So the Americans are all sitting around chewing gum, and they have the, their helmet straps undone like in, in war films. Uh, and then the British sort of have pipes and tins of lard, and and I, I had a really lovely chat with a couple of the British fellas. But there were the two German units, um, and they're not SS, you know, uh, which in in the people who do this stuff makes a difference. Oh, we're not SS, we're not the bad guys. But you know, the the research is that the regular work back, uh, the ordinary German army committed all sorts of atrocities as well. So it's, I don't think that really holds up as a defence according to the history. And there was one group of young lads, uh, well, I guess sort of early 20s in one German unit. And and they actually participated in the ba- battles and they kind of kept themselves to themselves and I didn't really get to speak to them. But there was another lot who were like a German wireless station and they had a, like a kind of officer's car with an officer sitting in the back spread out looking. He looked like he was enjoying it too much. And there was a woman there with her sort of like a white shirt with collar and a, a cap. And I did get talking to one of the people involved and had a sort of... I, I didn't tell him like it was an interview or anything, so it was just a chat. But it was quite interesting hearing their rationale and how they wheedle out wrongens and, you know, because obviously it's a bit of a, bit of a magnet, isn't it, to, to to that sort of thing. But it was quite strange. And it was people were kind of... The, the punters were sort of up for going and just having chats with with all of them, really. It wasn't like they were kind of going, oh, I don't want to, go, don't want to be seen talking to the Germans kind of thing. <laughs> they, they, they didn't seem to sort of have less cu- uh, custom, well, not custom, but visitors than than everybody else. Mm. Um, so it was, it was, it, it was, it was a really, I mean, I had a great day out. I really, I really loved it. But as I write in the, in the book, some of it really, I did feel a bit strange. You know, that everyone is obsessed with the German stuff. Uh, you know, just that's the who's that people are taking the most pictures with the Tiger tank, which was the big heavy German tank that looks particularly mean that had a 
it has a sort of huge presence in the German iconography of the war, even though there there weren't that many of them actually on, particularly in the Western Front, and they were a bit rubbish. They ran out of petrol and were quite hard to fix. But everyone was obsessed with the tiger. Everyone everyone was looking at all the German stuff in the in the shops. And then I found, as you say, the the pan, soft toy Panzerfaust. Um, and for those who don't know what a Panzerfaust is, it was a single use anti tank rocket. Uh, that the Germans had and was produced in large numbers and particularly towards the end of the war was given out to Volkssturm units. And this was basically like the German Home Guard. So it was people who were too old to be in the regular army or had been injured and things like that. And also very, very young teenagers. In a way that the British Home Guard was a bit older, this is sort of like 14, 15, 16-year-olds who were thrown at particularly the advancing Red Army with these single-use rockets. And, you know, I don't know how many German teenagers were killed while trying to attack tanks with these things, probably hundreds, thousands. And I just thought that the <laughs> that selling a soft toy version in the tank museum shop was somewhat beyond bad taste. I just thought, of all the things, I kind of, yeah, all right, make a soft toy tank or something, perhaps that's fine, but not a Panzerfaust, really. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Two things there. Firstly, it's still crazy to me that the German naming convention uh, of, of big cats still remains, right? They still have the leopard tanks. That That's just funny to me that they haven't... Yeah, yeah, they just, carried, they just yeah, carried on. <laughs> <laughs> the second thing is I think someone speaks to you and they say, just kind of absentmindedly, like, oh, it seems that the men who dress up as the SS are always policemen. That I thought was a very yeah, funny... Yeah, yeah, that was St- Stephen Morris, who's the drummer in New Order and um, Joy Division. And uh, I made a film about his his military vehicle collection a few yeah. years ago. And he, he was telling me about Beltring. I think it's called the War and Peace Festival now. But probably a lot more war than peace at it, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> and that's that's basically like Tank Fest, but even bigger. Like the, It's like the biggest, the biggest one. And he he said, "Yeah, well, the SS guy seems to be uh, seems to be policeman." I, I'm not sure whether he was possibly slightly exaggerating there, but you know, I, I, I do, but I do I do think that probably dressing, you know, what there is, there's going to be some issues around masculinity and power and so on. If 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 you're dressing as a German, I I just struggle to see how you can sort of consciously go, oh, I'm just purely doing this because I'm interested in the history and I think it's important to see how the other side fought and so on. I just, I, that just, it just doesn't seem, doesn't seem yeah. right. I mean, I'd, I'd love the idea of dressing up as a British soldier for a weekend. It would be amazing. And I, in an early version of the book, I was planning to kind of go and join one of those units, but COVID was on, yeah. so I couldn't really do it. But dressing as a German, yeah, yeah, you know, the uniforms look cool, you Anyone who says, oh, I don't think you could say Nazi uniforms look cool. It's like, do you think the Imperials look cool in Star Wars? Yes, you do. Well, it's it's, it's the same. That's literally what they're yeah. based on. So, uh, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't be strutting around uh, anywhere, really. Not even at home. Not even at home, I hasten to have. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be doing it in the privacy of my own. I think um, that'd be even weird. I think that would be weird. Yeah, <laughs> yeah if you don't um, go out wearing it. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, I just think it's, I just thought that was, that was very rum, but. But that's the I mean, the tank festival is a sort of case in point, really, and 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 that's why I wrote about it quite a lot, was because I felt it really encapsulates the complexity of, of being obsessed with war. I don't think it is as simple as it is bad or toxic or or or, or a side of bad masculinity to be interested in. I think I think it's a real muddle. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shankar, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life 
into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I, I wanted to dig into, you know, there's, there's a moment in the book where you're describing the black paste that sticks to the sides of the mm. insides of tanks when a, a armor-piercing bullet has gone in and basically rendered the humans to, you know, goo. And I think there's a tension throughout the book, which is metal versus flesh, right? It's, you know, there's a lovely moment where you say, I, I, I didn't want to put the crew in the cockpits of the of the fighter pilots. And you, you posit that maybe knowing so much about the tanks and so much about the tactics kind of inhibits empathy to a certain extent. To what extent have we have we overfocused on the metal and not enough on the on the flesh? I mean, I I think massively. Um, but interestingly, that was sort of part of the whole Western Allies tactics in, in the Second World War. There's a very good podcast called We Have Ways, presented by Al Murray, Pub Landlord, and James Holland, a military historian, and they they talk about this idea of steel, not flesh, which was nobody, the Western democracies couldn't put their populations through the carnage of the First World War again and the trench warfare. So the whole idea was that steel would take the strain and you wouldn't have to be having so many men fight on the ground. So the British army was mechanised, there was the investment in strategic bombing but on both sides and so on. So there's a, it's quite interesting that that was sort of part of the doctrine of the Western Allies in the Second World War, but then has become our cultural fascination with machines of war. And a lot of that is, you know, I do think to do with capitalism and the uh, the rise of model kits, which I love, and I still have millions in my cupboard up there unbuilt. And I think, you know, before the 20th century, soldiers were always pretty much out, soldiers at least, were out in the open. You know, there was no airmen. Um, sailors were, were within ships. But so, you, you know, there's that kind of idea of the, the warship. But I think if you look at pre 20th century warfare, it's almost like people are more interested in, in stuff like HMS Victory than uh, and, and Nelson and the Battle of Trafalgar and, and ships as a, as a machine, which they are, rather than the sort of the, the armies of, of Wellington. And so I think I think we have become overly obsessed with these machines and you know, don't pay attention to, to what goes on inside and what happens when they're hit. Particularly, you know, as we were saying, tanks, when they're hit and the ammunition and the uh, fuel catches fire and then these sort of fast, intense flames that are pressurised pour out of the hatches. We've neglected to think about what happens to the human body inside that. And I think it's been interesting and, and sobering since Russia invaded Ukraine in seeing a lot of the footage which, which there's loads from drones and soldiers' cameras and so on, where you're getting the same footage of tanks being hit and these flames pouring out. And, and, I, and I wonder if perhaps that's going to reconnect us to this idea of, because there's so much of this footage, what was happening inside these tanks. Um, but as you say, some of the descriptions of, um, of death in tanks are, are really horrible. And there was actually a real problem in, in during the war, something I was going to write about the book, but it didn't quite fit, of... Um, particularly tank officers, tank commanders, uh, they were usually in a position where they could get out more easily because they'd be in the turret and near a hatch and looking through periscopes and so on. And if a tank was hit, 
they could get out very quickly and a lot of their crews didn't and there was a, there was a huge problem psychological problem with uh, tank commanders having breakdowns because they'd left their crews and their crews had been burned to death and you know you can imagine that how horrific that that would be the feeling of responsibility and and I, and I, I I think you sort of see this this sort of horror of that and this disassociation we have between machines and the men in in this treatment in inverted commas that these tank commanders were put through, which was called enforced grieving, where they'd be locked in a dark room with basically food and water for days to to and forced to grieve to kind of break down their suave tank commander exterior uh, and and to sort of help help them in inverted commas again, which um. Did work by and large <laughs> as a form of psychotherapy, um, but yeah, I, I, and I, 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 and the same goes for aeroplanes, which obviously are a lot more beautiful than tanks. Which is why we become more obsessed with them because they're really striking, lo- lo- lovely looking things. Even the bombers are very beautiful. There's something about that uh, about flight that just is it's hard to resist. And whether that's and, and and you know and warplanes generally look more sexy than civilian ones, to be honest. I mean, that's what it comes. It's a sort of like a very base. I say sexy, and I mean sexy, really. It's like a base sort of appeal uh, to to, uh, uh, to to our aesthetic sensibilities. Completely agree, and and I want to stay on that idea of the body in in conjunction with things that are, are both beautiful and and, and horrible. It strikes me when you're talking about masculinity and warfare that there's almost a paradox between it is a profoundly embodied experience. You talk brilliantly about smell, the taste, the touch, all of this sort of stuff, but it's also very dissociative, right? You're rendered to a number and you're classified and you're rated and you're kind of sent out. Equally, we think of masculinity as the the freedom and, and liberty and self-determination, and yet the ideal soldier is someone who follows orders and is clockwork and is disciplined. There's sort of like tensions of masculinity here throughout. And I think the body is, is so, is so key to that. Um, the anonymity of the body within, within the many. And you speak about all these brilliant soldiers who are trying to come to grips with this and, you know, formulate it. Have your ideas of the masculine body and of, you know, this, this idea of embodiment versus masculinity, have they changed as you've, as you've dug into this? Mm, that's a really good question. I like that. I think I've become more acutely aware of that idea that I write about at the start of the book of what would I have done? How would I have coped? What, what you know, I used to imagine what it would be like to be in a bomber in a kind of like, what, what would it look like? You know, what would it feel like? But I think now I've become more conscious of the of the physicality of that because i've just read so much about it and mm. also how the how the mind then affects your body uh and the vulnerability of the body within it and i think particularly as i write in the book since having a little boy having a kid it does change your perspective because parents you know the idea of parents sending their children to war is always going to make a make you have a completely different um view of it so i think I, I think i've become more aware of it more conscious of it possibly more able to even Im- not put myself there but imagine the fe- some of the feelings that i was i was writing about and i don't think we're not obviously none of us can ever 
be there, you know, totally feel like we know what it would have been like. Uh, you know, I, I think that that's just impossible. It would almost be quite offensive to say, you know, what it was would would be like. But I, I, I think that maybe my imagining of a lot of these things has become more acute. Certainly my nightmares about it all, which I've always had sort of war-based nightmares ever since I was a, a kid, they've become slightly more grim, to be honest, the more I've researched it. I think you, yeah. you do a brilliant job of of sort of forcing us to empathise with the, the feelings of it. We've had um, a couple of other historians on recently, Caroline Dodds-Pennock as well, um, talks a lot about the Indigenous experience in in Europe and, and forcing you to go like, what would that feel like? How would you, you know, you describe the idea of pushing a bayonet to someone's chest. Like that is a very uncomfortable feeling. And so much of military history avoids empathy quite considerably. And you seem to, to run towards it. Yeah. I mean, that, that's literally why I had the bayonet chapter in there. Cause in some ways it, 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 it's kind of odd just having a chapter on bayonet, bayonet warfare, but I wanted to be able to say, I hear all the machines. I still, I still, I can't drop this fascination. But bayoneting is so specific, and yeah, I kind of when I write about what would it have been like to to stick a bayonet in in someone and feel them, I could almost, you could almost go go there. I think because because it's so simple and so visceral, and there is almost a, a a leap that you. I mean, not fully there, but. There's a there's a hint of it. There's a hint of what you can what you what you might be able to perceive of that. And just and that is the big question, really, isn't it? Like what that that's about as killing someone as you uh, so intimate as you can get. Because it's not like in war films when they go and on a do a raid somewhere. I mean, there's loads of those where they kind of go up behind a German sentry and slit their throat, you know, whatever. Which I imagine happened on very few sort of special forces type operations. But bayoneting would have been relatively common. We don't never know, but that happened, and you would be looking at the person, and it would be a very conscious and fully senses on moment. And I thought it was important to really go down to to that as a way of filtering out the machines in a way. And you absolutely do that brilliantly. And and so okay, so we we've spoken about how we empathise with the figures quite a bit and, and how we how we envisage them. There's a lot in the book about memorialization. Of course there is. This is this is such a present thing in especially British culture. And I want to dig into Captain Tom because you know there's you know rarely a, a bigger figure that, that appears in the British consciousness. I mean I think he, he was represented in drones, I think, in the last um Yeah, last that's what I New Year's I, I, Eve. It was, it was it was New Year's Eve. I remember seeing that on the was watching New Year's Eve on the telly and just being like What's Wait a minute, <laughs> what is, and I was like, it is literally a sort of 400 foot, maybe even bigger, high light sculpture of Captain Tom so, <laughs> coming I over mean, the London horizon. And it, it was just like, this is, this is. Okay, but, so for, for American listeners, and for maybe people somehow in the UK who were living under a rock, who is Captain Tom? And why does he, for you and me both, for the record, produce such an uncomfortable response in many ways? given the meta situation? Uh, Captain Tom was a Second World War veteran who, during COVID, walked up and down or around his garden with his image frame in a sort of sponsored walk uh, and raised money for the NHS. And it was one of those things in a very bleak time. 
that quickly went viral and he raised something like 30 million quid for the NHS. And I've got no beef with Captain Tom <laughs> whatsoever. I think he was obviously, you know, that was an amazing thing he did. He raised loads of money. That was fantastic. But outside of him, I just think there's lots of things about it that make me very queasy. One, it's this sort of link between the quiet hero of the Second World War. He was doing his bit then. He's doing his bit now for 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 Britain, you know. That made me feel a bit icky, link the way that that because there was a lot of linking of the war and COVID going along, particularly from conservative politicians. Secondly, I felt it was really in poor taste that he was raising money for the NHS, which was founded at the end of the war in this sort of spirit of hope and thanking everyone for what they'd done and everything they'd sacrificed. And now this current government have depleted the NHS violently in the past uh, 13 years. And, and making money off PPE contracts. Right, yeah, exactly. Giving, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, 30 million quid from Captain Tom, and that basically pays for some of these dodgy deals, doesn't it? You know, uh, uh, with with more money to come in. Please, Captain Tom, can you do a few more lengths? Because we've got to pay off that woman who bought a yacht with it. And so that I thought that was really offensive. And, and then the way he just became this sort of that overused awful word iconic hero of the war and he and he started to represent all of that he became this sort of like figure who was seen as represent that's what they were like that's the britain that they created and this is what you should be like it was just everything about it was just felt very tasteless again not to denigrate anything about captain tom and his walking up and down and of course subsequently it, there's a slight sort of controversy about exactly where some of the money went and his family and they're profiting from not that money perhaps but some of the some of the legacy of it and it just feel it felt it sort of encapsulate he not him again no beef with captain <laughs> you don't want to get cancelled for tom hate. The, the whole the whole i mean but this is the thing i suspect if there's anything you know people might take umbrage with in this book it's sort of the bringing in captain tom uh because he has become one of these figures where it's sort of like, his person is beyond critique. He's from that generation, the greatest generation. You're lucky to have had them. God help us if there's a war now. You're all a bunch of snowflakes, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, when uh, he, he, it's just such a simple look at somebody who is very complicated, which is why when I, I write in the chapter about desire and masturbation and everything, I bring him in there because I wanted to say, not not to be tawdry or anything, but to say, yes, Captain Tom masturbated during the war undoubtedly I have no doubt that Captain Tom was masturbated during the war and to reduce him to this dotty old man going up and down in a, in a Zimmer frame removes this sort of incredible agency that he would have had at that time and this part of him that was that was very beautiful and I, I, I just wanted to sort of push against that a little bit and be very respectful I, I, I don't feel I disrespect Captain Tom in any way I have a huge amount of respect for what he did during the war and, and in his garden raising money it was just everything around that situation just made me quite angry, to be honest. It's my favourite line in the book. Uh, the idea that Captain Tom is cracking one off under itchy blankets. <laughs> I, it just, like, because you're absolutely right. And I think throughout the whole, the whole book, d desire and, and um, the fact, the uncomfortable fact that the war for many people was quite sexy. You know, um, you, you quote someone that says, you know, the city became like a paved double bed, all sorts of naughtiness going on in shelters, uh, you know, line dancers having gas masks on, and, and just that feeling of abandon of like, well, we might as well do it now because we might never again. Is it helpful? 
I mean, this is a leading question because I agree, but you know, why is it helpful to remember that the war was was sexy to, to, to some people? Because I think that, that makes us more acutely aware of the body within the machines and the body of the civilians on the ground who were being killed, such as the woman I write about who had a very, well, a couple I wrote about, a man who wrote the memoir, and they had a, a very intense sexual relationship, despite them both being in other relationships. And, and, and that relationship was based around desire. They never said they loved you. He only, they only knew each other by first names. It was all in hotels and everything. But it was a very urgent wartime relationship. And then she was killed in an air raid, uh, trying to rescue a child. A beam fell on her. And I felt that that was to sort of talk about the urgency of that sexuality was a counter to this, this sort of idea that the, the body disappears within the machines. I'm trying to say, look, here is the body. And this, is, this was people's response to the war. And this is what happened during the war. And it's interesting because even, even since finishing the book there's bits where I keep finding things or even remembering things that I, I kind of illustrate this I remember I was on a canal boat holiday when I was a I wish I'd remembered to put this in that's really annoying I didn't but we were on a canal boat holiday with, with, with my parents uh hired a canal boat and you know pootling along through the countryside and this woman came and started talking to us when we moored up through the night and my dad was sort of like trying to shoo us away because she was going on about how in the war the, the American soldiers were stationed nearby and she loved taking them down to the canal for a shag uh, and then somebody <laughs> else told me about this uh, memoir uh, uh, that this guy wrote about um, a voyage during the war where it was in a liner that had a fake funnel and he had the key for the fake funnel and he just had constant constant like just shagging in the fake funnel all the time uh, and I'm reading another book, uh, Journals of a writer called, um, an artist called Denton Welch. It's incredibly beautiful writing. And he he was gay and he writes a lot about this sort of slight feeling of desire. He's always going to to, to, to the river to, to watch men bathing naked. And it's just this sort of hum of desire within that book. And and it's interesting because even though I've finished now, I keep, fi- I keep finding more and more and thinking more and more of the examples of this sort of, yeah, this undercurrent, like like Quentin Crisp said, who said the the, the London became like a paved double bed. It was just this. It was ever. It was just going on everywhere. There was just so much. What seems to me to be a very natural and unforced expression of sexuality. It wasn't. It wasn't like this sort of idea we have now about empowerment and quite a performative sexuality, um, which I think is because it is a completely different time. Eighty years ago, and pornography and the kind of idea of a sexual revolution in the 60s have changed how we see expressing sexuality in some ways quite good, but in other ways there can be a performative aspect to sexuality and an intellectualization of sexuality, which just I don't think existed then, perhaps because it was furtive, was, was you know, because of morality, going against morality. It, you couldn't do that because you couldn't express yourself. But in some ways I find that kind of very natural way of being slightly you know, see me, see me <laughs> and out of the way, kind of more interesting in a way. I mean, I do think, you know, people talk about the sexual revolution in the 60s. And to my mind, the, the wartime sexual revolution it was just as vivid. And the sexual revolution in the 60s often seems to be one that was enjoyed by the middle classes and sort of artistic people. And it wasn't really enjoyed by gay men at all. Uh, that the gay gay liberation sort of came in the 70s and lasted for a very short time before HIV and it's not like homophobia really dis- disappeared that much so I, I kind of see this the second world war as being 
possibly more radical than the 60s and 70s, really, in, in, in the liberation, or at, least, at the very least part of the same continuum. You know, these things don't exist on their own. There's that, um, that old apocryphal story of the sign in Norwich near the GI base that said, GIs drive carefully, that child crossing the road might be yours. Um, oh, really? <laughs> That's amazing. Um, I heard that one. But okay, Fantastic. so so I want I want you, you mentioned towards the end there, the, the, the gay experience, and I think that's also one of these sort of head scratches in this retelling because on the one hand, there was an incredible amount of medicalization. There was, you know, horrible edicts written about how you would be thrown off a ship if you were gay for, you know, with disgrace. And, uh, you know, there's there was a, sort of a huge amount of um, pain and, and sort of suffocation. There's someone who who couldn't bear the thought of an armistice because it would mean going back to, but, but then also it was a golden era in many ways. And, and the blackout is written about in many memoirs uh, as being this lovely moment of sort of, you could hold hands and you could pick people up in the park and there was casual sex with officers and, how do you how do you square this paradox where, in, on the one hand, the the laws are very oppressive during the war, but then on the other hand, it seems to actually get worse afterwards, and it was a golden era during. Yeah, I mean, it it just it just seems that that was very much the case. All, all the evidence from testimony and mass observation, people's memoirs I read, of people who uh, listened to oral histories, that the war was a time of liberation for queer men. And the statistics bear it up, as I quote the historian who points out it was less than 2,000 court-martials convictions for indecency or sodomy, whatever you want to call it, in the military during the war. So it just it just obviously was this time of liberation. And I think there is that partly the authorities probably had better things to do than go around picking up and persecuting gay men. But... And and as Dudley Cave, who I who I really love and I write about a lot in the book, says, you know, the army used us because they needed the manpower, um, you know, so you have everyone you can. But also, I just think there was a time. It was a time where all of the normal rules were upended. Society had totally broken down in a strange way, and people felt, I think, a sense their desires was whether they felt liberation. I'm not sure. Their desires were liberated maybe unconsciously, and therefore you had men having sex with men who might not normally have sex with men, and now all the medical research, researchers after the war, or the, even the assumption now would be, oh, it's because men, when they're in all-male environments, they miss women, so they'll have sex with a man because they're just horny. And I just think that's such an inadequate way of looking at desire. I just might, I've always believed that we're on a grey scale of gender and sexuality, and the war and the relaxation of morals and societal codes and being able to get away with things in the blackout meant that people's true bisexuality, even if they weren't aware of it, that it being a true bisexuality was something that could be explored. Yeah, and then obviously in the 1950s, it was awful. The prosecutions went back up. There was a lot more blackmail. There were cases prosecuting gay men there's obviously the most famous second world war homosexual alan turing and what happened to him which was absolutely revolting um and this this real sense of fear that hangs over gay men in the the 50s it's it's really sad to read about it in the testimonies and that's why you had people like peter de rome who i wrote about you know went off to america because they britain just seemed like an awful gray oppressive place where he, he could he couldn't be who he was. John Alcock, you quote as well, 
um, felt so worried on the streets that he came home and burnt all his love letters from from the war era. Exactly. It's um yeah it's it's pretty bleak and and I suppose you know you you speak about this really really well but you you talk about Ian Gleed who was a sort of suave professional fighter ace you know sort of the classic Dan Buster's vibes and and you say you know I, I I see him as a war hero of the traditional sort who just happened to be gay right there's a sort of there's a tightrope because on the one hand you want to give credit to these these people who were queer. In, in this you know, throughout history, but then on the other hand, maybe they didn't see it as the most important part of their personality. Maybe they, I mean, they definitely didn't have the same ideas about queerness as we have today. It's quite a hard tightrope to walk that, right? It, yeah, it was, and particularly with Ian Gleed, who wrote a memoir where he writes, and I, I use it as a source in the book, where he writes about his lover Pam, uh, who was a woman who his family were very confused about because they they'd never met her. And it's interesting with him because he obviously, you can look at Ian Gleed and say, well, he was a very repressed homosexual. We don't know if that made him very unhappy and therefore he didn't put it in the memoir. And therefore, when he was outed on telly in the 90s um, by one of his lovers in a, a documentary, was that right for him to be outed? Is it right for me to write about him as a queer person in the book when he wasn't out in his memoir, because I think he possibly was out to the people he served with. Basically, Ian Gleed's Pam was actually a, a young man who he was uh, in love with and having a relationship with, and they went sailing together. And Ian Gleed, when he had this sort of like typical dashing fighter pilot idea to build a to, to sort of set up a little base on the Isles of Scilly to intercept German f- bombers before they could get to Britain. He used to fly back in the Twin Sea to Tiger Moth aeroplane to pick up his lover and bring him to uh, to the Ciliars for a spot of sailing. Now, I'm pretty sure that everyone in his unit must have known what was going on. I was, who was this? Who was it? Why, why did your commanding officer fly back home in the two-seater aeroplane, at not small risk, to pick someone up who's not in the RAF to come and stay for the weekend? Where did he sleep? And I think, so maybe... There's there's been an outing publicly, but maybe in his unit, he was he was known as gay. We just we just don't really know. I mean, he was he very much associated with other homosexual uh, sailing people <laughs> at the time, like Somerset Maugham, um, uh, which I write about in the book. So he, there was obviously an aspect to him that was out and to some people and known to some people. And I think that's the great mystery. We'll, we'll never know because all we have to go on is his memoir where it's all Pam and a biography where this is sort of very much swept under the carpet and not discussed, which is sort of, I find quite, even quite odder really because it's it's almost like denying that part of him, at least question, just ask about it. But yeah, I think he 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 very much was a very conventional idea of a Battle of Britain fighter command hero dying tragically in the Mediterranean, you know, buried buried in the sand and everything, but he was gay. And and I just, I, what I like about him is he, because he, I still think there's an idea that gay people can't be brave and bold and warriors. And there's almost perhaps an idea from some on the left of LGBT plus culture that they don't want uh, LGBT plus heroes to be warriors who fought for their country and shot down loads of Germans. It's almost like that's a bit problematic, isn't it? You know, uh, and I like that he's complicated in that way. Uh, I think that's fantastic. And something that has sort of increasingly occurred to me is, you know, men like Ian Gleed would have been very aware of what has happened to homosexuals in Germany. 
they would have known what went went on in terms of the persecution of gay men in Germany. I'm I'm very sure. And you you're probably going to fight in the same way as the Polish squadrons were the most successful in in the Battle of Britain because they really in you know, a country had been taken over by the Germans. Their family were families were still there, and they really went for it. They shot down more German planes than anyone else. So I kind of think actually were the gay were the gay men or bisexual men who fought kind of a tougher and fought harder than everyone else because they knew they would be the first to suffer if if the Germans won. And I think that's a... I don't sort of explicitly pose that question in the book and I possibly think I should have done, but at the same time, I think it's imp- implicit maybe um, that if you're gay in 1940, you've got a better motivation to fight than, pr- than pretty much anyone except for a, 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 a Jew uh, in, a, in the military. I think that's a fantastic um, thought experiment. And, and I, I, you know, I, I'd never heard that theory before, but I, I really like it. And that's great. So a couple more questions as we sort of wrap up here. You uh, write about someone called Roberta Cowell. That might strike people as odd, given that Roberta uh, is a woman's name, uh, included in a book called Men at War. Why did you include Roberta? What, what, what's, what's her story? And um, how, how does she feed into this idea that, you know, it wasn't a, a, a simple narrative of, of heroes and villains. Um, I think I wanted to sort of write about people, the subversion of gender um, expectations, which is why Quentin Crisp's in there, and then cross-dressing in army units, prisoner of war camps, among army, RAF, Navy personnel, and then a, a woman in the Women's Land Army who pretty much identified as a man and wanted to be called John. And, and Roberta Cal was the... I wanted to have a perspective of... I mean, we're using very contemporary terms here, so I need to do it because otherwise it doesn't make sense. But, you know, I imagine nowadays uh, Enid Baroud, who I write about in the Women's Land Army, would be seen as a trans man. She liked to call herself John, wore men's clothes, saw herself as as male and female. Maybe she'd have seen herself as non-binary. I'm not sure. I refer to her as a woman in the book because that's how she referred to herself. Roberta Cowell was born Robert Cowell um, and was a very, very macho uh, man and uh, was into car racing, had a family, joined the RAF after working his way, desperate to join the RAF, never managed to early on in the war, but then managed to um, join the RAF, flew Spitfires, did two tours of operations, got shot down, ended up in a prisoner of war camp and was very aggressively macho and homophobic. Uh, and then after the war, I had a breakdown, but also a realisation that he wasn't comfortable in his gender and was one of the first, if not the first, trans woman uh, to be operated on in, in Britain. Part of the reason I included Roberta Cow's story was because I find it very fascinating that the technology used to for transitioning, both for trans men and trans women has its roots directly in military medicine all of it comes from the techniques that two surgeons were using to rebuild airmen's faces who were horribly burned and also to repair genitals after sort of groin injuries and so on all of that technology straight after the war went into two transgender operations that are still the technology and the techniques are still used today makindo technique for trans women came from Roberta Cowell. So I thought that was fascinating. It really shows this sort of new take on the world that, you know, I, 
is, I think it's very subversive. It's like, hey, turfs, <laughs> so without you know traditionalist turfs, without the Second World War, you know the, the Second World War was a great enabler of of transitioning and allowing trans people to be who they were, which I think is very beautiful. Actually, out of all this destruction, came this this beautiful thing. Um, and so, yeah, it's Roberta Cowell transitioned and lived as a woman. Now, Roberta Cowell is a complicated person. I finished the story kind of just after she's transitioned in this amazing incident where some, some bloke tries to pick her up by going on about how he's a Spitfire pilot and did all this stuff in the war and goes on about how, how he, he basically gets something very wrong about the technology of a Spitfire. And of course, Roberta Cal, having flown Spitfires, was able to say, no, mate, <laughs> go away with your lame attempt to pick me up. I know a lot more about Spitfires than you do. And I, and I just loved that. I thought that was a really beautiful story. So I end, I end with that story. But I think later in life, the Roberta Cal story does become more complicated, but it would have been very difficult to get into that without kind of rewriting that whole the book and it doesn't make the point which i was making which which was there was this uh consequence of the war was was the the transitioning technology and and that and i i wanted to leave leave that discussion on that rather beautiful point i think i i agree and and if anyone wants to to know more about it there's a brilliant book recently uh before we were trans by kit hayam that that digs into it and also goes into exactly what you said which is that if we see sexuality as fluid if we see gender as fluid then the people who were ostensibly the female acts in shakespeare plays in pow camps but then stayed in their dresses and stayed in their makeup why is why is that not being interrogated as moments of trans history and moments of, of queer history as well so it, it's a really interesting topic that builds on a lot of yeah because I, I think i think that was the thing with the prison of war camps was what i i found you know it's always pictures of kind of people in prison war camps dressed as dressed as women and obviously some of them they're just having the right love but you do get an impression from some of the testimony that f- for some it's that stuck and whether they continued with that exploration of of Gender when they were demobbed and went back home, not sure, but some of them definitely grew into it in in this prisoner of war camp situation, which I think is very very fascinating. I have I have one final question, which is as the so one of the book's thesis statements is that it's almost impossible to weigh up the macro of especially bomber command feature very heavily and and the sort of the objective like evil stuff that happened that came out of the bomb hatches of the Avro Lancaster, right, the, the Dresden massacre and, and, and all of that. Um, it's very hard to weigh up that with the individual bravery and beauty and, and love and, and care um, in, in the individual. And the fact that we draw these very simple narratives about heroes and villains is profoundly dangerous. And this sort of, this this thing, you know, it could happen here, it could happen here, kept playing in my mind as, as you were writing because... I think you say at one point that it's a privilege that we have been complacent and can rely on these simple myths. And you visit RAF Lisset and there's a swastika that's been sprayed on the wall, right? In in learning about the fact that, you know, the frailties of human nature that led to, to genocide and the compared to maybe the beige safety of 1990s Britain, as, as you talk about, was there ever like warning bells of you know we really should learn this lesson we really shouldn't make these simple histories we we have to learn urgently you mentioned ukraine as well basically could it could it happen here and and was that in the back of your mind uh 
Yeah, I mean, it, it was vaguely, well, I mean, it, it, was, it was very much in the back of my mind, but in a quieter way. And then as I was finishing the book and Russia invaded Ukraine and suddenly you know, that the, the end of history did never happen. You know, we're basically still in a continuation of eternal European conflicts. So There's sort of like this could happen again. Bells were ringing even louder. But what what is odd is it, I think it works in two ways which are almost contradictory, funnily enough, because I do worry about the British tendency to think of the war as glory and to be very complacent about the the dangers of British nationalism. And you can see the right wing at the moment, any critiques of British nationalism or um, any critiques of British history are just shouted down as being, you know, the usual words. Uh, even if they're making, if they're critiques that, that are quite subtle, that I think I'm, I'm trying to make, um, and uh, and I worry about that sort of British exceptionalism, nationalism, jingoism, and I think we see that whether it involves us invading other countries again, I kind of don't think so. Maybe I doubt it, but it definitely informs. Uh, what's happening with the migrant crisis and Suella Braverman? Um, stop the boats! Uh, stop the boats! All of all of that is that's informed by it. I think that's using Second World War. It's very interesting that there's this plan to build um, migrant accommodation on the runways at RAF Scampton, which was the home of the Dambusters. Now I am, and, and and what that's being done is replacing a very good multi uh, hundreds of million pound project um, to improve that local area, do put in a load of high tech business, create jobs, and preserve the history of the Dambusters Squadron and all of that. And I am fairly convinced, and don't feel it's tinfoil hat. To uh, that, I, I feel that this is being done deliberately. They're deliberately using that airfield to create a narrative of the Dambusters versus these invaders uh even though it's the tories doing it themselves i think they can go oh but it's the home office or whatever and it's it's to stir up racist sentiment using the second world war i really believe that on the other hand uh while i'm wary of this british nationalism and militarism and exceptionalism and jingoism i'm also wary of the other side which is the left sort of appeasement of putin and this idea that you know all imperialism is bad uh, except for, um, well, it, it, it's bad if it's British or American, or, or, or but everybody else kind of there's a oh well, it's that's still Britain and America's fault. I think, I think there's a lot of complacency about the threat from autocracies uh, on the left, and I don't think pacifism and stop the war, who I find infuriating as an organisation, I don't think they're the answer either. And I, I, I must admit, I'm, I'm slightly feel we do need to invest more in the armed forces and look after the armed forces and look after our servicemen and women a lot better so i mean that, that's sort of the weird the weirdly the con- conclusion of the book and where i very much sit which is i, I imagine some people might think it's slightly contradictory which is not a pacifist position at all but also being wary of of jingoism and exceptionalism and the exploitation of the memory of the second world war for those those ends, those very limited ends that don't really see the full picture. I mean, listen, you say that your your aim is to kind of pick up the kaleidoscope and look back to a to a richer history and to kind of sit with the fast and slippery myths, and and you certainly do that. And uh, you know, I I you know agree and disagree with you know most of the things you say, and I think that's kind of the point, right? It's meant to be messy. It's meant to absolutely, be- yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, that's what I'm kind of intrigued about uh, with this book because I I I. I 
I really see it's it, it, it's quite an odd path a path through like with particularly around the bomber command stuff you know there's people every year the guardian does an article about the bombing of germany was a war crime and i i don't agree with with that i can see the logic but at the same time i think the tactics were wrong uh there should have been more focus on infrastructure and all facilities and and less on area bombing but there are things like you know bombing germany tied up huge numbers of guns that otherwise would have been on the eastern front the western front opposing soldiers you know it's 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 just i just think the whole thing is always complicated when you, you can't there's I, I just don't like these binary views of of war really i think i think it's really complicated and messy there's nothing more complicated and messy morally than a war and therefore i've always been frustrated by by the sort of discussions of it because i'm just there going ah, ah you know i, I could kind of see both arguments so i, di- I didn't want to write a, pr- a book that was deliberately revisionist or provocative or trying to be tasteless by bringing sex and the war together but i definitely was very aware that it's a book that kind of people from both sides of the fence might take umbrage with but that's fine i think we need more things like that i'm very bored of books and newspaper articles and radio programs and podcasts that just do take one side in these infernal culture wars and I'm, I'm trying to take a more complex position. You talk about how we need to have good conversations and not just have lectures of the story, the one narrative we're allowed. And I think this book absolutely does that. Everyone who's listening right now, go go buy it and then go and have conversations, arguments, fun debates with friends about the, the people in there and, and enjoy it because I think it's, it's a brilliant read. Luke, thank you so much for your time. Take care and good luck with the book. Cheers, thank you. This episode starred Luke Turner, whose book Men at War is out at the end of the month. His interviewer was Luke Naylor Perrett, and the show is made by me and Esme Bright, with help from Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Doughty. Until next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.